Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. Knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. As coronavirus cases spike across California, Bay Area school districts continue to weigh when and how to reopen. San Jose Unified School District recently announced plans to open classrooms in January. Oakland Unified has yet to set a date. But what impact is remote learning having on the education and mental health of students? We'll discuss the effects of remote learning on K-12 students, and we'll want to hear from you. How are your children doing with distance learning? That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Most Bay Area students have been out of school since March of last year, and school on Zoom has become the new normal. For most kids, it hasn't been easy. It's been taking a toll on grades, learning, and on mental health with increased reports of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. And remote learning can exacerbate educational inequality. But some families say there are benefits from learning from home, and we want to hear from you. If you're a student or parent, how is your family coping? And are you eager for schools to reopen? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions or thoughts to forum at kqed.org. Joining us to talk about the impact of remote learning on kids is Heather Huff, Executive Director of the Policy Analysis for California Education, PACE. And welcome, Heather Huff. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you, and also want to welcome Naomi Bardock, who is a pediatrician and associate professor of pediatrics and health policy at UCSF. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. And I'll also say good morning and welcome to Lakeisha Young, founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach. Welcome to the program, Lakeisha Young. Thank you for having me this morning. Glad to have all of you with us. And let me begin, Heather Huff, if I may, with you. We know virtual learning upends stability and structure and home environment can destabilize and there can be all kinds of deteriorating effects from social isolation, though there have been some, as I said in the introduction, who have said they benefit by it. Give us a general picture, if you could, because there's a lot of great variations in the question of learning loss, but what do we know? 
Well, I think that this issue of variation is exactly the issue to focus on. And, and so I want to sit with that for a second. So we know that all students, the vast majority of the students in the state have been out of school for eight months. And we also know that distance learning this fall has been better than in the spring where we mostly implemented emergency education. The vast majority of students weren't accessing new instructional content. Many weren't accessing educational opportunities at all. So here in the fall, we have much more consistency and we have um, much more rigor that's being applied by schools and districts statewide. But some of the challenge here is that with students learning from home, the situation at home really dictates the extent to which they are accessing that content and really engaging with the material. So we have some students in the state who have a stay at home parent, who have a full time tutor, who have um, who are part of a learning pod. And those students are able to really thrive sometimes in this environment, accessing the content and even accelerating grade level standards. And then we have other students in the state who don't have that condition for learning at home. In the most dire cases, that's because they're experiencing food or housing insecurity, um, violence in the home, which we have heard is up in many places as well. Um, and also just don't have the kinds of supports from parents, especially for youngest students. The, the facilitation of remote learning from home really is an adult's full-time job. And so if you have students in a home where both students work outside, both parents work outside the home, where maybe parents didn't have formal education themselves or don't speak English, those students are having a much harder time accessing the content. And amongst those groups of students, many of whom are Latinx, Black students, low-income students, we're seeing uh, declining enrollment, we're seeing low levels of attendance. And this is particularly the group for which this learning loss that you referred to, we're most worried about. And that's that some students are going to be falling behind during that time, this time, while some students, other students are on track or accelerating. And so what was already a pretty substantial gap in achievement here in our state is growing and will continue to grow. So what you're describing here is uh, even greater equity imbalances. I mean, certainly they've always been the case with rural areas and with communities of color, but if anything, they've been exacerbated. And also from the picture you're painting for us, we have to take into account the fact that many of these parents are out of work. Some of them have COVID. Uh, some of them uh, are simply not in any kind of stable routine themselves that can be providing for the kids. That's right. In education research, we, we talk a lot about the basic conditions that are required for children to be able to learn. And this is basic health and safety. And so in these homes where families are in crisis, either because of sickness in their home, having lost loved ones, um, having lost employment opportunities, falling into poverty, these are, are not environments where the families are going to be able to support their children's learning, despite how much they value education or want to. If basic needs are not being met and families are in crisis, those learning conditions aren't there. Many of these families simply don't have the resources and don't, in some cases, uh, don't even have Wi-Fi. Um, it's, uh, I think, an important sense of the picture that you're providing for us, and I'm appreciative of that. I want to also remind listeners that you can join us if you have a family uh, situation where you're dealing with 
the lack of in-person classes. We want to know what you're going through. And if you're a parent or a student, how has it been? Are you eager for schools to reopen? As I said, you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. We welcome your calls. And that's the number to dial in on, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Uh, let me bring in uh, uh, Naomi Barbadak, who is a pediatrician and uh, associate professor of pediatrics health policy at UCSF. And uh, Dr. Bardak, uh, let's first of all talk about some of the physical consequences that we're seeing. I mean, a good deal of fatigue and problems with sleep and anxiety, all of that, uh, but also headaches and more emergency room visits. Yeah, that's that's right. That, those are all um the physical effects of sitting in front of computers for a long period of time, which is most of what kids are doing when they're when they're doing their distance learning. Um, the other important thing that we're seeing at, in clinic is actually also rising rates of obesity. So kids um, who aren't getting the exercise that they normally do in their in their regular school days, um, and uh, and just are you know when you're eating at home and sitting most of the time, then it's easier to to gain that weight. It's it's a much harder environment for families to sort of help their kids manage their, their eating. Um, and the, the effects of sitting in front of a computer is actually something that, that most adults are probably well aware of, but our kids haven't yet actually learned how to manage their, um, their physical being and their ergonomics while they sit in front of the computer. So that's why a lot of families are reporting increases in headaches, um, the fatigue just of, you know, sitting in front of the computer with eye strain, et cetera. Um, and then lastly, the really important point about the, the mental health effects um, of the lack of social interaction. It affects kids of all ages because there's a lot of social um, and emotional development that happens in the school setting facilitated by teachers that can't happen in distance learning. And then the mental health effects of anxiety and depression. We're seeing rising rates of um, you know pretty serious mental health effects in um, in older age groups in the middle schoolers in the high schoolers that's happening locally and it's happening nationally I'm hearing stories of it um, at all levels and it happens across all socioeconomic um, groups so it, it's uh, yeah they're they're all very important things that we should be tracking um, as we continue to to sort of try and address the effects of COVID during this pandemic. Yeah, there was an important article uh, Emily Goldberg did, uh, Emma Goldberg, excuse me, in, in the New York Times about the uh, increase in anxiety and depression from, well, the, the sort of uh, problems that we're talking about here and outlining here. But nevertheless, there are some students who feel more safe at home and they don't have to deal with bullying and they don't have to deal with uh, concern about school shootings or cliques or that sort of thing. And they can sometimes pace themselves even better. But we're talking probably about a distinct minority there. What do, what do we know, uh, Dr. Bardak, about uh, Zoom fatigue? And what do we know about, for that matter, social and cognitive implications of Zoom learning? Um, you know, I think we actually don't, we, 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 we don't know a whole lot yet. We know about it anecdotally. So in terms of scientific evidence, you know, it's very, very hard to actually document that. It's a great question. It's very hard to document. 
Um, I think what's really important for us as we think as uh, how, how we make our policies, it's really important to start thinking about ways of gathering this information about the effects of uh, distance learning for kids, um, including these effects of mental health and fatigue, et cetera, um, the social and emotional metrics, so that we can actually see them side by side against our COVID metrics. I think one of the, one of the really big issues we we face in America as we continue to try to, you know, as I say, respond to COVID and actually mitigate the response, the, the bad effects of COVID writ broadly, is we see a lot of data on COVID cases, but we're not capturing all of the other um, uh, impacts of COVID in a way that we can track and help to make policy decisions. So our understanding of what's going on with Zoom and Zoom fatigue and kids, there's no data stream the same way there's a data stream for COVID-19. Um, so we get a lot of anecdotes about it, but but it's still not, you know, we, we don't have a good documentation system in place. Talking and, and about I the effects say, of remote learning oh. on kids uh, and excuse me, Dr. Bardock, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought you took a little pause there and I just wanted to uh, reset things. Uh, actually, uh, do you have a sentence that you wanted to finish there? Because I want to bring a caller in. Um, I was just going to say um, uh, it is really important. I think you bring up a very important point. I, I, Heather touched on this as well, this idea that there's variation across students and there's variation across teachers. And I think we actually have to be very thoughtful about that. Um, but we can move on. And I'm sure we'll, that that theme will come back up. Yeah. And we also, I think, need to take into account that online learning can be especially challenging for kids with uh, what used to be described as uh, learning disabilities or kids with ADHD or on the spectrum with autism. Uh, Here's a listener who tweets, having classes outdoors in open spaces has not been given consideration. Temperatures don't drop low th here. Also, the proposal now is two and a half hours of in-person instruction per day. How does this work for families that don't have the luxury of working from home? I'll let that uh, question hang for a moment in the air because we have to go to a quick break. But when we come back, uh, we're going to get take some of your calls and we're going to hear from Lakeisha Young, who is uh, the founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach. And again, we want to hear from you. How has your family dealt with this lack of in-person classes and face-to-face -face learning? And if you're a parent or a student, how's it been? And are you eager for schools to reopen? You can give us a call now at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. This is the Forum Program on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about online learning and its effect on children, K through 12. And uh, I asked for listener responses and asked for how some of you are managing or not managing. This is Isabel who writes, our seventh grade daughter started private school in March. 
She only went for one week, then everything transitioned to online. While we're happy with the academics, the classmates have been far from welcoming to our daughter. They ask why we live in Richmond and why we don't have a backyard. She's been excluded, with others having parties and she's not being invited. She used to be part of a theater group she loved, and that doesn't happen now. It's really been tough, and I know it's been tough for many of you, and uh, that goes without saying. Let's hear from a listener. Billy joins us. Billy, you're on the air. Hi, um, I live in San Francisco, and I have four children between the ages of two and ten, and um, I feel really lucky I'm able to stay home with them. My husband has been sitting in the car catching the Wi-Fi signal in front of our apartment, and we've got a kindergartner, and doing Zoom with him has been, well, we haven't, he hasn't even gone to kindergarten for the past couple of weeks because once he gets on the computer, it's just really hard to get him off. And and then I, I'm having to like police my other girls who are clicking around and maybe chatting amidst the Zoom meeting. So it's just been a lot of juggling and overwhelming and so much computer time. I've noticed a marked change in everybody's behavior. So we're we're doing a lot of like missing classes and stuff just because for the peace in our home that seems to be a better solution. Well, I hope that peace continues. And uh, Billy, thank you for letting us know what you've been experiencing. Uh, I want to bring uh, Lakeisha Young into this conversation. She's founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach. And the Oakland Reach is uh, uh, really known also as a kind of hub initiative. Uh, tell us about it, Lakeisha. Just describe it for listeners, if you could. Your work is pretty impressive, if I may say so. Um, thank you. And before I jump into that, I just want to say that being here today as the co-founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach, I come with a huge amount of responsibility. So I bring with me the voices of hundreds of Black and Latino Oakland families. 90% of our families qualify for free and reduced lunch, and 25% of our families have IEPs. And many live in Oakland's neighborhoods with the lowest performing schools, some not just in Oakland, but in California. I just want to really provide that context and I bring their voices and what they have said and shared about their experiences. But back to your question about the hub. Um, yes, the hub was directly our response to listening to our families and building the solutions that they needed back in March when COVID hit. Our families want their babies to go to college. They want to disrupt this school to prison pipeline. And they were really concerned about the digital divide the learning loss, not being connected to their teachers. But we were also in the middle of a very significant, the beginning of a health crisis. And so from that, we built what we call the Oakland Reach Citywide Virtual Family Hub. And in phase one of that hub, we pretty much ran a summer school. We had 200 Oakland students enrolled. We hired 14 teachers, every single family had a family liaison, so almost like an educational social worker, someone to support them and help them navigate. Families received stipends. Every single kid received a computer. And families who did not have internet access received a hotspot, and we were paying for the monthly access, right? So we made sure that we listened to our families and provided an educational solution that did not wait on the school system to figure it out. And at the end of those first five weeks, right, and that's why I think it's so important for us to expand the conversation about distance learning and its impact on students. Our kindergarten through second graders 
some of which who were not even sounding out words in five weeks went up two reading levels on the citywide assessment, right? We had a 90% satisfaction rate from our families. We have many families who have not been connected to the education system, who are not seeing what's happening with instruction, sitting next to their students, I mean, their children, and now they're able to really see what quality instruction looks like. So I do not want to like undermine the challenges. I'm a mom of three and my oldest is a senior in high school and I have a ninth grader, but I also want us to be expanding the conversation about where um, distance learning has really helped families. And I also want to note that like, we just recently surveyed, we surveyed our families in August, and then we surveyed our families again just this month. In August, only 13% of our families wanted to go back to school. And then now only 20% want to actually, school reopen tomorrow, only 20% of our families would go back to school. And so the rest of 40% said no way. And then the other 30% said it depends. And of those folks who said no and it depends, most of our families are really, really concerned about this virus. It is really important to note that COVID has disproportionately impacted the black and brown communities. Many households that are multi-generational, right, that have essential workers, like our families are afraid of dying and having people in their families dying. And that trumps in many cases, everything. So they want their kids to get a great education. They want their kids to stay on track and they want to have family, their family members safe. And we have so much mixed information about this impact of this virus on different groups of people and ages that I think it increases anxiety for folks around this. Well, and if I may say I so, also, you have helped a lot of people in, uh, in, in underserved community uh, and particularly black and brown communities. And my hat goes off to you and I think um, we can learn a lot from your experiences, obviously. Uh, I wanted to read some emails that are coming in and bring some callers in. Also, uh, a yeah. listener writes, my high school student went from straight A's and needing little to no parental involvement to straight F's within three weeks of remote learning this spring. She basically shut down. We had a battle with her every day to start up Zoom and turn in assignments. She started staying up until 2 or 3 a.m., agitated with anxiety. We have started with a therapist out of pocket, but I can imagine there are many families that are not able to access that resource. And Lori writes, my teenage child was bullied on an ongoing basis. Distance learning has been wonderful. His stress level is much lower than when having to face the bullies every day. Grades are excellent and he sees friends outdoors on weekends. So much happier. I'm very sad that so many other kids are suffering, but those that were suffering daily at school before may be doing much better now. And I think, Lakeisha, that sort of is in sync with what uh, many of your families have been experiencing, right? Well, I, I would have to say that I can speak on this from just a personal perspective as a parent, as well as, you know, my responsibility as a leader. I would say, yes, the our families have not talked a lot about the psychological impacts of distance learning. I think for them, they're like, look, we need to keep you safe and we're going to figure out how to do this in the best way possible. But as a mom, you know, my senior has friends. But again, that whole socialization of school for her was not necessarily, didn't feel the way, same way as it does for some kids. So she's finding herself being able to focus more. This is not a one size fits all. And guess what? I think it's a good problem for us to have right now. This right, system me... has been a little bit too 
black and white and not really meeting the needs of the communities it needs to meet. We are about to run into a situation where there are gonna be plenty of families staying home and there'll be other families who choose to bring their kids back to school. But this is what this is about for us, Mike, is that whether a family decides to stay at home, because we did have 15% of our families saying that distance learning is working better for them. So whether our families decide to stay at home or go back to school, we have got to change the educational outcomes for our kids. And I feel like that's a part of the conversation that I don't hear enough of when we talk about COVID is that we were in an education crisis before we were in a health crisis. Less than 30% of black and brown kids are reading on grade level. So we're not running to bust down the doors of the schools that have not been serving our kids well. So I think we need to be expanding the conversations to make sure that we, whether they stay at home or they go back into those classrooms, we make sure that they're on track to go to college and we put the things in place. Um, and we will continue to run the hub. We run the hub, we run an after school program right now. We're providing literacy instruction and writing and science. Um, we are making sure that our families are not left behind. And again, I admire your passion and uh, I'm glad you're with us this morning. Let me bring some callers with us. Let me go to Chris in Oakland. Chris, join us, you're on the air. Good morning, I've got two kids in Oakland Public Schools, one in second grade and one in sixth grade. Both of them have been diagnosed with ADHD. One of them is also hyperactive. One's inattentive, the other one's hyperactive. Um, my wife and I both work. I'm full time, but it means with distance learning that we're like ships in the night where one of us has to stay home and try to work and at the same time feed and make sure the kids are at least somewhere near a computer where they can kind of process what's going on. Um, but between, I mean, the distance learning has just been horrible for both kids. One kid has an IE, had an IEP, and we're trying to get her reevaluated again, but that's been almost impossible with COVID going on. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to watch our kids and our kids' friends um, try to socialize over social media, or I mean, not social media, but distance learning, um, you know, but it's not, nothing's been the same. And I fully get that uh, everyone's had to make sacrifices in trying to make this happen, but um, both my wife and I have been big proponents of the school, at least, you know, take the kids down to the park and teach them there or block off the street and teach them there, you know, or even on the playground. I mean, there's so many different ways to do this that don't involve staring at a computer all day. Um, and it, it's clear to me that both kids have suffered from it. Their anxiety is through the roof. Their stress levels are through the roof. Um, and it's hard to be compassionate as a parent you know, to make room for them to do that, but also to let them know that uh, they're loved and, you know, that, that um, they should basically do the best they can under the circumstances, while at the same time being very concerned about how much they're falling behind. Um, it, it's been tougher than I thought it would be. It sounds like an ordeal, Chris, and I'm sorry for what you've gone through. I empathize particularly with the, when you talk yeah, it, about suffering. I mean, really, really uh, challenging. 
the, the, that comes through in, in your narrative, not only the suffering, but the challenge of all this. And let me bring in um, and hear from Heather Huff again, Executive Director of PACE. Uh, Heather, what do you say about particularly the kind of needs that are expressed in Chris's call and uh, also when he mentions special needs of students? They're not being met, clearly, uh, at least they're not being met online. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is what we're hearing all over the state with students who have special needs and have individualized education plans or IEPs, students learning English, um, students who maybe have fallen behind during distance learning. I think that there is um, there is an opportunity here to begin to build toward how we think about organizing our schools better to serve this kind of student need in the longer term. Um, as Lakeisha was saying, our schools have not been great at meeting individual student need for a very long time. And now that need has fanned out. And so there is an opportunity to do that big picture, longer thinking. But I wanna come back to thinking about what we can do right now, because for a number of reasons, we have increasing virus transmission rates in many counties. We also have a large proportion of families that wouldn't send their kids back to in-person. So in-person instruction isn't the only solution here. We really have to work at strengthening the ways that we do distance learning. And there's all kinds of challenges with that that the callers have really summed up very succinctly, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. So the research evidence on distance learning shows that the things we need to do to engage students and help them learn are not dissimilar to what we would need to do in real life. Students need lots of opportunities to interact with each other about instructional content. They need interactions with their teachers or other support providers to give feedback on their work. For students that have special needs or have, um, or, or even are just struggling with a particular concept, they need one-on-one -on -one support that meets them exactly where they are and helps to accelerate their learning or address any misconceptions. And what Lakeisha was laying out is a solution that they've developed in Oakland for doing some of that. But for many, many students across the state, they're not getting that kind of individualized support. And I think a lot of students also aren't getting the, the kinds of interactions that you could try to create on Zoom that are more interactive and more relational. This is particularly important in the earliest grades where, um, as one of the callers pointed out, the kinder, her kindergartner um, can't sit on Zoom and listen. That is true because it is not developmentally appropriate for a kindergartner to sit down and stare at a screen or work on worksheets independently. The ways that students that age develop are through play, through interaction, um, through socialization. And so this is something that we really need to think about. How can we be really creative about making sure that students are getting those kinds of supports, knowing that a return to full-time in-person schooling isn't going to happen for many, many, many students this academic year. Let me read a comment that's come in from, again, we were hearing from listeners about what they're going through, and I want to give uh, the essence of some of these remarks to you. Meg writes, I'm a single self-employed mother on the 10th month of working from home. My fifth grader is a good student and easy to get along with, but the situation is taking a toll on our relationship. We're both frustrated every day. She isn't getting enough exercise and has stayed 
has started playing computer games. She is very social only child. I'm applying to private school now at a cost of more than $2,000 per month, but I'm afraid that after I sign the contract, they could get a COVID case and get sent back home. And those fears about going back to school are certainly uh, preeminent in the concerns that parents have. Also, there's a lot of concern just about what people can't afford. Uh, can't afford tutors at $100 an hour that have widened the education divide. And let me bring some more callers in here. Let's hear from Adam in San Ramon. Adam, good morning. Good morning. Um, there's two kind of points I wanted to make. Uh, for our daughter, who's a uh, junior, it's actually been great for her. She's a very motivated student. She's taken AP courses. For her, there's no books to lug around. There's no commute. There's no clicks. There's less wasted time. She has direct teacher access. She can take naps in between glasses. So she, she really likes it. Uh, and I think it, you know, listening to all your amazing callers and, and guests here, I, I think there's a way we can make this work. I've been thinking about something I call the four T's, which is tools and technology. Right now we have kind of a patchwork of tools and the, the, the teachers need training and support on those. Uh, but there are great products out there that can really facilitate distance learning that can be set up and configured. Um, then there's teacher training and support, making sure the teachers have adequate support. Uh, therapy, uh, there's, a, there's a big mental health cost here. It used to be social workers at schools. There should be some form of check-in for every kid to make sure they're doing well. Uh, and tutors, you know, and I think we could, we could uh, harness a lot of the stay-at-home energy of all these bright kids out there, my daughter included, to help tutor other kids and connect us as a society uh, and, you know, help give everybody uh, a hand up. And, and lastly, this is a T people might not like, but tracking, uh, if kids are playing games or not paying attention or what have you, that's all something we can tell and, you know, make sure that the kids are in school, they're monitored and uh, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I, I believe there's ways that we can come together as professionals and tech, technology executives and really put a structure together which can make distance learning work for all kids in America. Adam, a hopeful note, and good to hear from you. Thank you for that call. I'm going to read a couple more emails that are coming in. Here's Liz who writes, there's little doubt that in-person learning is best. However, as a first grade teacher, I've received some wonderful comments from parents who say they've learned so much from observing how we teach, specifically parents of a special needs student commented that they have learned things they would never have known and can now help their son in a way they hadn't expected. And Michael writes, as Ms. Young said, the problem of unequal support existed before the pandemic. Children of educated parents who have the time to work with them are always going to do better in school than children who lack these resources, whether they go in person or not. We'll hear from more of you, and we'll continue. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the effects of remote learning on kids with Naomi Bardak, who is a pediatrician and associate professor of pediatrics and health policy at UCSF. And Heather Huff is executive director of policy analysis for PACE, the California Policy Analysis for California Education. And uh, Lakeisha Young, who is co-founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach. And let's hear from another listener. Victoria joins us from Santa Rosa. Victoria, welcome. Good morning. 
Hi. Good morning. Thank you. Yes, I have two daughters, an eighth grader and a tenth grader. And uh, since this has been going on, uh, their, their grades have been suffering and emotionally and academically. And my mother is a retired school teacher, so she's going to be coming down to help with them because my, their father and I both have to work. So they have to self-motivate to get up and sit in front of a computer screen for seven hours a day, which is definitely taking a toll. But my mother brought up a point, too, that, you know, no one's really talking about if we go back to school, what happens if one of the teachers comes down with COVID? You know, does the school shut down and do they have enough resources to, you know, bring in a sub and be able to deliver the same quality of education we've expected from their teachers that our kids have gotten to know and, you know, learn from over this, this time? So just two separate points. So thank yeah, you. no, thank you for those points. And let me go back to you, Naomi Bardek, uh, because I think you said that maybe we should open the schools before we even open the bars and restaurants. And certainly National Pediatric uh, Professional Associations have said that sc- schools really need to be open because kids are being harmed. Uh, where are we now in your judgment in terms of reopening? Uh, so I think that um, one of the really key pieces about reopening is understanding what's going on in our community. So the higher rates of community prevalence makes it much harder for us to feel confident that if we reopen schools, that there won't be a lot of infections in schools. So that's one piece that, that you know, policymakers are thinking about, that that's the rationale behind California's um, decision about if you're in, you know, the purple tier versus the red tier versus the um, orange tier versus the yellow tier, where, whether or not you can consider uh, reopening schools. Um, so that's one piece of it. We were going through, at least locally in California in general, we were going through that that period of lower prevalence. And that was a time when a lot of schools were opening up because it felt safer. As we move forward into into having a surge again, I think it's 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 a little harder to open up, but there is a pathway forward, which is that um, it's really important to understand, can we try and catch infections as they're coming into school? So testing is one piece of that. And then the other really important piece is that if a school has already opened, it's important to continue to do testing the way New York City has done testing, where they have ongoing random testing of people who don't have any symptoms to understand if our community rates are going up, are the rates in the school also going up or are they staying low? Because we know that especially for elementary school students, they tend to not get COVID as much and they tend to not transmit it. And so teachers and, and students in those schools are generally the story is that, that it's a low risk of transmission. So um, all that testing to understand what's going on in the schools separate from the community is actually really important. So I think that that's, that's where we are in terms of, you know, can we consider reopening? We can still consider reopening, especially for those kids who need it. As we heard, there's the variation, you know, all the callers on the call and Heather and Lakeisha both make extremely important points. There's variation. So for those kids, though, who need the in-person instruction, there is a way forward and we can continue to 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 be nuanced in our thinking as we consider reopening for, for different populations. But the big question here remains, and let me go to you, Heather Huff, safety and also funding for PPEs as well. Yes, and it is really important to note that California education funding in California is some of the lowest in the nation. We're 39th in per pupil funding when you adjust for cost of living. And the implication of that for COVID is that even before the crisis hit, we had fewer adults in buildings and fewer available resources to spend money on extra things. 
So when we think about, you know, we've had a lot of callers say that they're considering or have moved their children into private school. Um, we also hear a lot of questions about why private school is open and public schools are not open. A lot of that, quite frankly, boils down to the available education resources that we have or don't have. Opening schools with masks and social distancing, changing bus routes, all of that is very, very expensive. And um, as is providing the kinds of supports that I described earlier, the small group instruction, if schools provided tutoring. So we really need to take a look at how we invest in our schools. And it's a difficult time because our state is really struggling economically from a resource perspective. But now is the time to invest more in our schools, not less. And that's the priority that we need to set as a state. All right, I want to bring in more callers. Let me go to Sacramento and welcome Michael as a caller. Michael, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I want to speak briefly to, as a child of the 50s, going to elementary school, our school times were staggered and accommodations were made for the safety of our teachers as well as us as children. And today I'm very concerned about our young people not being able to derive the full benefits of being in school. And our speakers have spoken very clearly about the impacts that are that are occurring for children. And the bigger one of the questions for me is our children are not stupid. They're very smart. They understand that they're not being valued at this very moment. And I'm extremely con concerned about that. They are our future. Thanks. All right. I thank you for that. We'll let that statement stand. We'll get another caller on. Sarah joins us from Monterey. Sarah, you're on the air. Hi. Yes. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am a parent of three elementary age students. Um, my husband and I both have jobs that we can do from home and all the internet and devices that you need. And I will say that distance learning for elementary students was a complete failure, both in terms of academic advancement and emotional well-being. Um, we ended up pulling our kids from a very well-funded private public school and at uh, economic sacrifice, put them in private schools, but in person. But my heart really aches for those that don't have that option. And I was hoping your guest could speak to the fact that in other countries in Europe, we're seeing even with um, higher virus community rates, they've successfully kept schools open. And it seems the evidence is showing that elementary schools are not a high risk setting. So why it seems that we are outsourcing the reopening decisions to the teachers union instead of the pediatricians and epidemiologists. So um, that's my comment. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that comment, Sarah. Well, you were saying before, uh, Dr. Bardak, that there needs to be perhaps uh, an awareness of kids not being necessarily that vulnerable, but there is concern about them being transmitters. And what, what do we know about European countries and how they're doing with open schools? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so a couple things. We actually have local data. Some people object to looking at European countries because they just say they're they're very different. And so the data we have from um, New York City actually is very telling, which is that they had uh, uh, they reported in the New York Times a couple like a week or two ago. They're doing ongoing testing in their schools, and they had. Um, 16,000 tests uh, done over the month of October, and they only had um, 28 cases total. So that's, it was 20 in um, staff members and eight in students. Um, so the rates are extraordinarily low in terms of when cases are coming, you know, when schools are reopening. And I think it's really important to remember also that those cases were not associated with, like, with outbreaks. 
Um, uh, so you can have a case in a school and you can, of those 28 cases, it's not that they gave it to each other in the school setting, it's that they, there are cases in the school communities. Um, so that's one really important piece to, to remember. New York City is doing all of those layers of mitigation that Heather points out are so important. The masks, physical distancing, small stable cohorts, et cetera. And, and I think it's, it's to the point of um, the, the reason for the European countries making that decision, it is a, um, a decision based on priorities and, and how they spend their money to keep their schools open and how New York City spends money and the investment we've put in education, we can do it safely. And it just needs to be a decision that gets made. And I actually generally, when I talk to people, I try to really encourage, um, you know, in these kinds of forums, I really try to encourage people to think about us all being together, that the teachers and the pediatricians and the parents are all working together to mitigate the effects of COVID-19 and to make decisions with societal resources to, to support education, but it has to be safe and successful education. So the safe part is for safe for families, for teachers, and the successful part is successful for students. And it might be that we do a variety of different solutions, but we all need to be in it together and be focusing on our, on our how we allocate resources. And I'll say one last thing, which is that in to, to highlight the European decision-making and, and that it can be quite, people can make different um, sort of uh, values-based decisions. Uh, in England, they decided to shut down everything, a pretty hard lock lockdown at the societal level, but they did keep their schools open, particularly elementary schools. In France, the very interesting, a couple of weeks ago, they were, they were allowing in their elementary schools kids with COVID-19 were allowed to come back to school because they looked at the data and they said, kids don't seem to transmit that much. It's fine, they can come back in. School's really important. So there's a whole different, there's a whole spectrum of how people might um, uh, might make decisions based on the value system uh, as they put it together with the infectious disease information. Again, Naomi Bardak is pediatrician and associate professor of pediatrics and health policy at UCSF. I wanna go back to Lakeisha Young, who's co-founder and executive director of the Oakland Reach. And your experiences in some ways are unique because of the stipends that you've uh, been able to get and so forth and uh, what you talked about in describing what the hub has done. Um, but I wonder if you could maybe crystallize for us what you've learned about online learning that can particularly be useful to parents at home now who are struggling with these uh, kinds of issues that we've brought up here. Because uh, I know one thing, for example, is it's become year-round learning, and you believe very much in the summer school uh, learning process. And uh, probably there are parents who think, well, learning should be nine months uh, like it's always been, but maybe you're facing the necessity to go 12 months. Yeah, I mean, the summer school thing is a personal choice. Some of our families are just choosing to make sure that their kids stay on track. I would say that what we have learned um, with the hub, and first I just want to say I've like literally listened closely to every parents' comments and and just want to say that I can relate and it resonates no matter what the race class, you know, socioeconomic class, like we're all just trying to figure this out. I do think that what I've learned is that it's important to have the right kind of infrastructure in place to be able, like I hear people saying, hey, we can just work together, we can do this, and that sounds great, but it you really do need to be thoughtful about the way that you set up um, the infrastructure to serve communities. And like I said, we have a family, like every family has a family liaison. For our families, that's a really big deal. It helps them know that someone has their back 
and is keeping them, you know, they, this person calls them in the morning, makes sure kids are online, helps them sort of, you know, take down barriers around connecting with the teachers and all of that. So I feel like what we've learned is that like our family, our kids can learn online that, and they have, and they've had success with it. I can't say that it's with every kid, but I have to say that the reality is, is that we're going to be in this scenario for a while. And so we better start figuring out how to do this with some fidelity and some innovation and some excellence. I think that is the biggest push I have. Even when we were in person, I think we were just way too lackluster in how we, um, you know, yes, schools that are well-funded and are able to add extra programs and resources, those families saw their kids getting something totally different than families in the heartland of Oakland. So this COVID crisis is really pushing us to do better by all students, um, all socioeconomic classes, all needs. Like I said, 25% of our families have IEPs and they are doing distance learning and they are seeing some success in that as well. And that's, that's 14, you know, that's almost double of the IEPs that OUC has. So we're not um, ignorant to having families that are deeply vulnerable, but what our families are asking for is excellence and making sure that we never forget to, that, to keep our families on the path and our kids on the pathway to college. This just cannot be an excuse for us not to deliver the best instruction to our students, whether families decide to stay at home or go back to school. Yeah, I'm so actually looking at a tweet from a listener uh, apropos of what you just said. It says, without the social pressure, I have one teen soaring with distance learning, but my other teen is sinking, especially without sports. The pressure of college is contributing to the mess. How will kids who stumble during this pandemic get into college? And uh, glad you brought that up, uh, Lakeisha, because I think it's a big question in many parents' minds. And another question is this. Um, well, let me read what Carrie writes in an email here. She says, I think it's a disgrace that we have private high schools open while public elementary schools are still doing distance learning. Data shows that high schools are spreading COVID and elementary schools are not. So we allow private high schools to endanger the community. This doesn't make sense to me and further divides children along socioeconomic lines. If you're wealthy, you're allowed to put people at risk. Um, and uh, let me read some more tweets and emails that are coming in. This is from a listener who writes, uh, who tweets, we have an extremely bright 15-year-old boy who has suffered during distance learning. He refused to go do homework for the first month of 10th grade because he was in such a dark space mentally. Um, and she goes on to write, uh, not having the social component to learning has been detrimental. Another listener writes, my seven-year-old daughter has had varying behavioral issues since distant learning started, hitting, biting, screaming, almost as if she's going through withdrawals after getting off the computer. I fear that this is doing to her mentally and what this is doing to her mentally and want to pull the plug on distance learning. But I also don't want to take away the little community and autonomy that she has. It feels like there are just no good options right now. I'd appreciate more transparency from San Francisco Unified so we can make decisions for the long term. And here's Jeanne, a question for you, Dr. Bardak. Uh, Jeanne says, why do you think we have not considered uh, school as essential and teachers as essential workers in the U.S. as much as Europe has done. We're back to the contrast across the pond. And when do you think that we might prioritize education over other aspects of our economy being the first to open and last to close? Uh, yeah, I'll say a couple of things. Um, the, the, so the idea about essential workers, there's um, 
there is legislation, at least in California, that calls uh, teachers essential workers. And I think it's a really helpful framing. It means that insurance companies have to pay for um, testing whenever teachers want it and as frequently as they want it. Um, and so that there is already in our community some framing of, of teachers being essential workers. Um, it, it, I, I think that this goes back to this question of, you know, why is SFUSD closed and um, private high schools are being open? There's, a, it's a complex situation where unified school districts, many of them don't yet feel prepared with the resources to actually be able to reopen safely. So all those layers of mitigation. So it's not that somebody says they can't open it's that the unified school districts say we are not ready and the private high schools say we are ready we have a lot of resources we poured a ton of money into our high schools and you know elementary schools many of the independent schools there's people say like you know a million dollars to renovate your school so that means that for us as a society we need to start saying those schools, those those unified school districts, they need money, and we need to make sure to address that inequity that that actually that money gets poured into those schools so that they can move forward and they get the support they need in project management or whatever they need in order to actually be able to get their dashboards all to green so they can so that they can open. Okay, so we've gotten, unfortunately to the end of the program. I I, I wanted to actually uh, get some more callers in, but we're literally out of time here. Uh, one of the callers who is waiting on the line wanted to talk about maybe this providing us an opportunity uh, to not look at schools as one size fitting all, but maybe uh, rethinking education in a different vein. There may, we hope, be positive things to come out of this, and uh, that's one suggestion to certainly consider. I want to thank our guests. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bardak, uh, Naomi Bardak joining us from UCSF, and thanks to Heather Huff, who is also with us from Pace, and Lakeisha Young, from the Oakland Reach. And thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you, and we appreciate your listenership. We're here with you every Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, with an hour repeated 10 to 11 in the evening. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, and Raquel Maria Dillon. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, and our intern is Jameson Weiss. Executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.